you saw a little bit of this last week at the end of uh, Galatians chapter 5 when before we jumped into the uh, section on, on the list of, of negative things, the list of sin or the list of works of the flesh, uh, and then looked at the works of the Spirit or the, the fruit of the Spirit, in chapter 5, you saw an emphasis on serving the Lord together as family, loving one another, especially within the body of Christ. And Paul, when he gets into the, the real practical application now of these, these uh, foundational truths that he's been driving home for the last first four chapters, certainly, and, and then into chapter 5, that's where he begins. And that's where we're going to begin with our study today. There was a, a, a movie that, that made record amounts of money back, it came out in late 1998, and it actually kind of had a slow start and a build to it. Uh, it was the movie The Titanic. It was one of those movies that I wasn't real interested in seeing because I knew the end, right? It was going to take uh, hours before you ever got to the end, but it began to, to build the excitement around it. It actually, uh, its biggest weekend at the box office was not opening weekend as most movies are. It was later down the, uh, down the road. And the reason that the movie became such a giant box office hit was not because of the $200 million budget and, and kind of state of the art, uh, uh, cinematography that was used in the making of the movie, but embedded in the movie was a very traditional, westernized, romantic love story between Rose and Jack. The movie even begins with her and her old age kind of remembering back uh, to the events of that time. And that it really is a great image of our Western mindset. Here you have this uh, scrappy young street kid who the only reason that he got to be on this giant extravagant ship, certainly on his first voyage, was because he won a ticket gambling in a poker game. And so he gets onto the boat and uh, he is, of course, in the lowest of the low, you know, he's in the lower echelon, and he meets this young lady, Rose, who belongs to an upper class family who is in first class and certainly... Uh, they begin to fall in love. But the problem is she is engaged to a very wealthy man. Uh, it was an arranged marriage, as many marriages were then and, and, and are in many cultures, uh, that was arranged in, in a way because her family needed her to marry this rich man because her father had blown their family fortune. In fact, there's a compelling scene where her mother reminds her of that, that you have to marry this guy. You, you, because for the sake of our family, for the sake of our future, you need to, to, to marry this man. Well, of course, she didn't like him. He was a jerk. And you can imagine the, the mindset of, of people in the theater uh, was, was something like this. And, and, and this, was, uh, this illustration was used at the introductory chapter, the uh, chapter one, actually, of Joseph Hellerman's book uh, on the church as family. And you can imagine him... The, the people in the crowd, you know, I'm sitting there rooting for them, right? You know, forget the family's fortune, Rose, okay? Forget about that jerk. Ignore your mother's wishes. Dump him. Follow your heart. Go after Jack, right? That's our mindset. But that mindset betrays a particular problem in our Western culture. It's all about me. It's not about the family, it's not about what's best for others around me. It's not what's best for my mom 
or my, the rest of my family. It's about me. And that idea has pervaded our Western culture, not just in how we relate to our blood kin families, but in how we relate to our church families. Intrigue, uh, interestingly, when you see the idea of family used in the New Testament for the, the metaphor of the church. In fact, when I did my study on, on how the church is defined in the New Testament for my dissertation, you'll are aware there were f- four major metaphors. I've talked about this before. One of them that we use most often is the body of Christ. The people of God is a metaphor that's prolific. Uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit is prolific. But the, the image that is most prolific throughout the New Testament, though it's used differently than the family or than the body of Christ, is the image of family. God has referred to Father uh, over 200 times in the New Testament. This, the, the, the Greek word for brothers or brothers and sisters in Christ is prolific throughout the New Testament. The idea of family being the, the metaphor, the primary metaphor for the church is, is without question in the New Testament. And yet, in our American mindset, our Western culture, more often than not, individual preference takes precedent over what's best for the family. That's true in the illustration of Rose and Jack in our personal families. It's also true in how we relate to the church oftentimes. A direct quote from Hellerman says, as church-going Americans, we have been socialized to believe that our individual fulfillment and our personal relationship with God are more important than any connection we might have with our fellow human beings, whether in the home or in the church. We have in the most subtle and insidious way been conformed to this world. Are you aware that the phrase personal relationship with Christ does not appear anywhere in Scripture? And yet I've probably used that phrase hundreds or thousands of times because I've grown up with that phrase. Paul uses the phrase, my Lord, in reference to Christ, one time. One time in all of his letters. He uses the phrase, or or my Savior, I'm sorry. He uses the phrase, our Savior, 53 times in the New Testament in his letters. Paul's focus is almost exclusively on Christ being our Savior. The mentality that we are in this together, the mentality that we are a family, the mentality that it's not about me, but it's about us. And yet, a part of the struggle that we have is we are so indoctrinated by, by our, the mindset of our culture that it is easy for us to read our culture into Scripture. And now certainly the idea of Christ saving me personally is embedded in the doctrines of the priesthood of the believer and in soul competency, the very fact that I will stand before God someday and give an account of my life. And, and certainly that I don't have to have a, a, a someone else. I don't have to have a priest through whom I go to have access to the throne room of God. And yet, the, the vast 
focus of the New Testament is that we are the body of Christ. It's not about me, my wants, my desires, but we are Christ's body. Hellerman begins his introduction of this book with a couple paragraphs that I wanted to bring before we jump further into the text. And I'm not going to read them verbatim, but it, it, it comes from, uh, like I said, the first two paragraphs of the introduction. This is how he launches out. He says, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding, and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wonderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they can't seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their needs. Like trees, repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, there's these spiritual nomads, nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. The truth is, the New Testament, in the New Testament, we are called to be part of a family. We're called to be part of a body of Christ. And in your family, you don't always get your way. In fact, you didn't even get to choose necessarily what family you were born into. And you still got to put up with them. And some of them are goofy, right? And I see some of you looking at each other. Some of you are weird. Some of, my, some of our family has a different personality than me. They have different wants and des desires. But we're still a part of a family. And you'll find we had the marriage uh, retreat for the, the young married couples. We had a handful of young couples that wanted to be mentored. And so we, we were able to, to have five mentor couples uh, that we connected with them. And uh, I know there was a little bit of misunderstanding about what was going on at that. We had hoped to have eight or nine young couples that wanted to be mentored. And we'd had eight or nine mentoring couples. Uh, and and we, we've seen God use that already. But the idea in a marriage is I'm not in it for me. It's not about me. For a marriage to work and for us to be able to have a long-term relationship that grows and develops, each partner has to make it their commitment and their goal to do what's best for the other or for us. You have to put the other person first and you have to put us first. When you do that, the society, uh, uh, the mindset of, of most cultures outside of Western cultures is eventually if I do what's best for the group, it will be what's best for me. But we have to put others first. That's Paul's focus. When he begins to dig into the, the specific commands of where we go from here, okay? He's dealt with uh, don't allow the, the flesh to control you. Be controlled by the Spirit so that you produce the fruit of the Spirit, which when you look at the fruit of the Spirit, they're all relational. Love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, right? Goodness, the relational ideas and how, how we connect to one another. And then he moves from there in his discussion through the Spirit into Galatians 6. And let's read verses 1 through 10. And we'll move through this fairly quickly today. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken by any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you won't also be tempted, carrying one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not be compared, not compare himself with someone else, for each person will have to carry his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived, God is not mocked, for whoever is a, a what Ever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. The one who sows for the, to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good. For we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith." I want to walk through this, this text today differently. I want, to, I want to look at seven commands that we see in the text. Um, the first few of these commands, I, I talked about this last week because Paul is kind of changing up how he uses his language here. The first few of the commands, he uses traditional uh, second-person imperative where he gives a command. He says, you do this, you do that, okay? You carry one another's burdens. Uh, you restore such a person. So traditional second-person uh, imperative commands. And then a little bit further down, you see him use uh, basically a third-person command where he says, let us. Uh, and so it's a command for all of us to do. And then as you get down to the last couple commands, uh, it is what, what we talked about last week is the use of a Greek uh, uh, tense called the subjunctive in what's called a hortatory subjunctive. So it's a command where he uses it uh, from a subjunctive standpoint. And that is generally translated in our text, also let us. But all seven of these are clear commands in the text. And I want to walk through those. The first command is made, of course, the title here is to brothers and sisters. Uh, the Greek word there is a single Greek word, adelphoi, which is a plural version of the word that's generally translated brothers. In the Christian Standard Bible, and in many of your texts, uh, you'll, you'll see that translated brothers. In the Christian Standard Bible, they made a choice when it is clear that the author is writing to a mixed group. So he's writing to the church that includes men and women. The translators chose to go ahead and translate that toward both. And so you'll see that, and, and sometimes it's a little bit different when we read our Christian Standard Bible, and, and it, he addresses brothers and sisters, which is certainly the intent of that Greek word. Brothers and sisters, okay? So family members, do you hear the language there? Brothers and sisters, family members. If someone is overtaken by wrongdoing, if someone is suffering because of sin. You who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Now, I want you to remember what Paul had just addressed 
in the previous paragraphs. He had given us a list of works of the flesh, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry. You can read the whole list all the way down to envy, drunkenness, carousing, anything like this. And then he'd given us the fruit of the Spirit. And now he's going to talk about those of you who are spiritual, those of you who are walking in a relationship with the Spirit, and you see a brother or a sister who has fallen in sin. Restore them. That's the command. Restore with a gentle spirit. The sad thing that's been noted about Christians far too often is Christians are the first to shoot their wounded. When we see someone in sin, we're the first to look down our noses at them and say, oh, look at that horrible sinner. I can't believe he's done that. He's backslidden. That's not how you would treat a family member, right? And Paul's command is, those of you who are spiritual, restore such a person. Your responsibility, our responsibility, when we see someone who has given in to the desires of the flesh, someone who has sinned as a brother and sister in Christ, is to do everything we can to restore them in their walk with the Lord. That's what church discipline is all about. Church discipline, this idea that we, that we as a church should, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, if you see a brother in sin, you go talk to him about it. If, if he doesn't listen, you take somebody else with you and you go talk to him about it. If he doesn't respond, then you bring him before the church. And, and it, goes all, it goes so far as Paul was dealing with an with a issue in 1 Corinthians that he tells the church, you have to remove that person from your membership. You have to exclude them from membership. You can't allow them to partake of the Lord's Supper until they repent. But then when you come to 2 Corinthians, Paul references that case and says, hey, y'all punished him enough. He's repented. Restore him to fellowship. The goal even when you come to the place of church discipline, if it has to go that far, the goal is always restoration. It's always to pick the brother up, to help the sister deal with that and to get out of that sin and to get out of that, that circumstance in life and, and, and to care for them. And you hear Paul use the word gently here. That word also has the same idea of humility behind it. We always, when we come and deal with a brother who is struggling with sin, do it in humility, recognizing that but for the grace of God, I'm nothing but a sinner. I have no hope. My sin disqualifies me from the, the throne room of God just as your sin disqualifies you. We all are on the same plane there. We have no business looking down our noses at a brother who has fallen because we, except for Christ, would be in the same place. And so the first command to the body here is restore. Restore with a gentle spirit. Watching out for yourself, lest you're tempted. I think there's a, a couple avenues that we could explore there with that, that qualifier. What do you mean watching out for ourselves so that we're tempted? I think first and foremost is watch out for ourselves so that we're not tempted with legalistic religious practice. See, that's, 
That's what Paul's been dealing with in all of Galatians. If you put it in the big context, there, there was a horrible issue with legalism there in Galatians. And so we have to be cautious that we're not legalistic in our application of how we try to restore a brother in Christ. Because if they're in Christ, they're set free, right? So be careful that you don't commit the sin of legalism as you try to restore a brother. But I'd also suggest that it, it may just simply mean that you don't give in to, or you don't fall to the same sin, let me give you a, a, a very practical illustration here. If you have struggled with alcoholism in your past, and your brother, you have a brother in Christ who is, is struggling with alcoholism, it's, it's hurting their marriage, and, and they, you know, you found out that, that your fellow deacon who has struggled with alcoholism is in the bar drunk. If, you're the, if you have struggled with alcoholism in the past, you probably don't need to go into the bar, okay? Certainly not by yourself. Get somebody to go with you or find a brother who doesn't necessarily struggle with that issue. Be careful. Be wise, okay? Watch yourself that you don't fall into the same sin that they've fallen into. Be cautious there. Second command you find in verse 2, carry one another's burdens. The command is carry. We are, we are commanded by Christ Come alongside and carry each other's burdens. Now, I love the quantifier that he uses here. The quantifier or qualifier that he uses is, in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. What do you mean you'll fulfill the law of Christ? I think you can, you can very easily find that in the context when you look back at Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. He says, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use the freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Ultimately, Paul, in a very real way, is equating, he's equating bearing each other's burdens with the act of love. How, how am I going to love you in the body of Christ. I'm going to love you by bearing your burden. I'm going to come alongside you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to help you. It, I think that, that that could mean very well financial support. It could mean help with needs, with food, with, with clothing, with basic needs. It, it may very well be to come alongside a brother or sister and sit down next to them when they're broken and in tears and to to be there for them. It may very well be caring for your, your friend or your brother or sister in tragedy. It may mean a card. It may mean a phone call. Bearing one another's burdens can come in all kinds of packages. But bearing one another's burdens, Paul equates to an act of love within the body of Christ. And we are commanded to restore those who are fallen. We're commanded to love, to, to help carry the burden of those who have a, have a heavy burden. We're commanded also in verse 4, as we're doing all of this, to examine yourself. That's a command. Paul expresses it in the same way as the first two commands. You, you, we are commanded to look inside ourselves and and examine our own work so that 
we're careful. We need to pay attention to where we are. We need to look at our own heart. I believe that this is very similar to Jesus' command when dealing with sin in a brother to make sure that you deal with the log in your own eye before you try to remove the, the splinter out of your brother's eye. And so we're commanded to, to pause and examine our own life, our own work, before we step out into Serving, not necessarily serving, but before we step out into trying to tend to another brother's work, his business, his job. Fourth, verse six, and, and it's maybe a little less comfortable for me to preach, but he says, let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. I, I started to put that very simply in the, the primary point and just say what that means is pay your pastors. I decided I'd back off of that a little bit. But in reality, what Paul is saying is those among the church who had made it their life's work to teach and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ among the church, God had called them to that as a, as a lifestyle. And so Paul is encouraging the church to share. Now, in their case, more often than not, it did not necessarily include pay in monetary sense. It meant bring him a few chickens uh, when you have extras, or like they would do in May, uh, if I left my door unlocked, I might find a, a couple bags of squash uh, or beans uh, in the front seat of my car. The point is that Paul is making to the church is as a body of believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a responsibility to meet the needs of, in particular, those who God has called to teach and to lead within the body of Christ. And, and, and this is not the only place. You'll see several times, especially in Paul's letters, an admonition to the church to care for those that God has called into the position of leadership, of preaching and teaching within the body of Christ. The fourth com the command there is share. Okay? The fourth our fifth command that we see is don't be deceived. And this is a, a negative, of course, the Greek word me that is placed in front of the command deceive. So it's don't be deceived. This, this command, in a lot of ways, is reflecting back on what he has said previously, but it is also pointing forward to what's to come in the next two commands. In a very real way, it points back, and, and Paul qualifies that because when you come to uh, verse 8, so let me, let me read the entire context of the command here. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked, for who, whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows in the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So, Paul is connecting this command, this idea, back to what he has previously said. It becomes very disheartening a lot of times when we see people who are living in sin, people who are functioning in life, maybe in business, without integrity, or they're dishonest, and it seems like they're always winning. They're always getting the promotion. They're always coming out on top. They're always making the money. When 
you look at yourself and you say, Lord, I'm just sitting here doing my best to be obedient and do what you've called me to do and look at how they're succeeding and I'm not. I think that, that the context here in particular points back to the, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. I've been, I, I, I'm serving you, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm walking in the Spirit I'm, I'm, I'm as best I can trying to connect to you and, and, and live in a relationship with you. And I'm not doing the works of the flesh. And yet look at how those who are doing those works are succeeding in this world and I'm not. And so he gives us a, a command here. Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled by what you see going on around you in this world. That's a command. Well, that's not, not easy, is it? We, what he's telling us is you need to have faith that God's going to work it out in his timetable. You need to trust God. Don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. Because see, those people, all of those who, who walk in the flesh or who walk in the, in, yeah, who walk in the flesh he begins with, who sow flesh, they're going to reap destruction from the flesh, because ultimately that's what always comes from the flesh. The flesh dies. Our flesh, this is not to be morbid, but our flesh is dying. Unless the trumpet blows and, and I look to the sky and Jesus is descending from the sky to give me my new body, as he pulls me up off of this earth, unless he does that, before I take my last breath, this flesh is going to rot in a grave. Flesh dies. God will not be mocked. It's a guarantee. Those who walk in the spirit, those who invest in the spirit, who sow, is Paul's word here, in the spirit will reap eternal life. The Spirit, enlivened by the Holy Spirit of the living God, does not die. And so when we sow in the Spirit, we are sowing in life. Everything that you do as you walk in a relationship with the Spirit is eternal in significance. Whereas everything that you invest in of the flesh is temporary and will die. And so... Paul commands us, don't let what your eyes see in this world fool you. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. God's will, God's way, God's word will always come out on top because he's God. He's eternal. Don't let this world deceive you. He goes on to say, whatever you sow, you will reap eventually. Sixth command is when he moves to these hortatory subjunctives in verse 9 and 10. He says, let us not get tired of doing good. See, I think that his command, don't be deceived, not only looks back to the, the, the work of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, his command, don't be deceived, also looks forward to what he's going to say here in verse 9 and 10, because he's telling us, don't be worn down, don't be deceived, don't get tired of doing good. I had 
in our staff meeting this week when we were discussing this passage, uh, Nathan pointed out as a young up-and-coming pastor, you know, he said he had seen that passage in the past and he'd always thought, how could you get tired of doing good? And then he became full-time on staff <laughs> at a church. You can grow weary. And some of you have seen that. You don't have to be on a church staff to understand that. You can grow weary if you continue to serve and serve and serve and serve. And it feels like and it looks like you're not reaping anything positive from all the sowing that you're doing. You can grow tired. Paul's command there is don't grow weary. Don't give up. Don't get tired in doing good. When does he say we'll reap? In verse 9, at the proper time. We'll reap at the proper time. Someone, sometimes it seems like it's a little bit late. Seems like God showed up one day late. That's what Mary and Martha thought. They were upset. Jesus was late. Lazarus was already dead. But God is never late. He's always on time. He'll show up at the proper time. And then the seventh command here has a therefore. So therefore, and he's going to focus back on this idea of family, the household of faith is how he ends this paragraph. Therefore, in light of all of this, his command to restore, his command to carry, his command to examine our work, his command to support your, 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 your leaders, those who teach, his command not to be deceived and not to grow tired. Therefore, as you have opportunity, let us work for the good of all. Therefore, in light of the fact that God doesn't grow tired, that God will, will, will reward in proper time, that you will reap in God's time, therefore, because there's a promise that when you invest and you sow in the Spirit, that God is going to, that you're going to grow in the Spirit and it'll have eternal significance, and the fact that if you invest and sow in the flesh, you're going to see destruction. Therefore, in light of all of that, as you have opportunity, so when should we work for the good of all? Every chance you get. Always, as you have opportunity, work for the good of all. When Paul says all, he means all. Those people you don't like, those people you don't understand, those people that you don't agree with who are part of the household of faith or not part of the household of faith, work for the good of all. And the good of those outside of the household of faith, the best thing you can do for them is share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Because if they don't hear that, they're, they have no hope. They have no future. They're going to hell. So the best good that you can do outside of the walls of the household of faith is share the good news to be a witness for Christ. That's the best gift that you can give anyone that's more important than feeding them for the rest of their life. You could provide enough income to feed a homeless person for the rest of their life, but if you don't tell them about Jesus when they take their last breath on this earth, they'll wake up separated from God in hell. If you want to work for the good of all outside of the household of faith, share the gospel with them. Tell them the good news. 
But Paul zeroes in also here in this text because if we have a responsibility to, to work tirelessly as we have opportunity for the good of all, especially, especially we have, an oppor- we, we have the command to work for the good of all for those who belong to the household of faith, those that are part of your family your church family here in the body of Christ. Yes, we have a responsibility to work for the good of all. But our primary responsibility, and certainly when he speaks to brothers and sisters in verse 1, and he tells us to restore gently and to carry one another's burdens and to pay attention to our own work and and, and make sure that we take care of those who who are teaching, those commands are all clearly directed within the body, within the family of God, within the household of faith. We have a command to do just that. Church, we are called to be a family. Certainly we're called to be a family on mission. Our primary focus ought not be my kingdom, or your kingdom, my desires, my felt needs, what I want, my focus and your focus ought to be the family of God that he's called us to as we seek to serve him. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.